Hi, and welcome to Forest of the Future, the podcast series where we talk about what is evolving in FSC and what innovations are underway in FSC. Today, we are going to talk about something which in Europe and probably also beyond is a very big thing, EUDR. EUDR is the European Deforestation Regulations, which entered into force on June 29th, 2023, and companies now have until the end of December 2024 to get aligned. The directive impacts every company who's importing or exporting to and from Europe across all commodities which have a proven link to deforestation and forest degradation. That includes products such as cocoa or coffee, beef, leather, soy, palm oil, and then, of course, at the heart of the interest to FSC, all products made of timber, paper, and natural rubber. The directive sets quite strict requirements for which kind of information companies will need to have about the raw material of their products, their origin all the way back down to plot of land and time of harvest. It also requires a due diligence risk assessment and a due diligence statement. In short, companies will need to have much more data than before and more transparency about their supply chains. How will FSC adjust to this need for new data fields? Can we help? And if so, how? And what is causing headaches when adjusting to a new legislation? That is the topic of this episode, where I've invited Joanna Novakovska, FSC's Systems Performance Director, and Michael Maruz, FSC's Chief Information Officer, and Matteo Mascolo, who is the lead EU Affairs and Engagement for Europe, all of them have agreed to help me get up to speed. This is a really large topic, and therefore this episode will consist of two chapters. This is chapter one, where we focus on what the new rules are and how they compare to FSE. Having requirements in the EU on information about origin of timber products and their species isn't a new thing. We've had that since 2013 with the European Timber Regulation, or EUTR. So what is it that's changing? Matteo, let's start with you. What's the difference between these two legislations? This is a story that started in 2013 when the UTR came into force. We're speaking about the U-Timber Regulation, but it's actually an even longer story. And with the U-Timber Regulation, the European Union, they wanted to tackle illegal logging. And illegal logging is a serious issue that has several negative consequences, environmental consequences, social consequences. It is important, it's still important to tackle illegal logging because it's a driver of deforestation, biodiversity loss. So the Commission was right with this innovative regulation to focus essentially on wood and illegal harvesting. But then the Commission is sort of now enhancing this regulation with the UDR. Uh, in fact, you can think about the UDR as a new TR 2.0. And the difference are that we are going from illegality only, legality or illegality, to cover also sustainability. And going from focusing on wood only to seven commodities that are the commodities that are mainly associated with deforestation and degradation. And the essence of the regulation remains the same. The main scope is due diligence. So those are obligations for companies. They need to mitigate the risk 
that when they source these commodities, and we can speak about these commodities, they need to come from legal sources and they should not come from a land that was subject to deforestation and degradation. Another difference is that with the UTR, the UTR focused only on the timber that was placed circulating in the EU market, whereby the UDR as a double component. So we focus on commodities that are placed in the EU market, but also to commodities that are exported from the EU market uh, to the rest of the world. And in fact, the UDR is set to have also global implication rather than uh, European implication only. Hmm, interesting. When I talk to to companies around EUDR as well, there's also a new social component that wasn't actually in the EUTR. Can you elaborate a bit on that? Absolutely. One of the unique parts of the UDR that is also include the social safeguard. So social requirements, for, for instance, the protection of indigenous people. And that's, that's a unique part. And there are also other social um, obligation in this regulation that's completely a new way of tackling an environmental issue because you tackle it also from the social perspective and of course everything is connected do we know why the eu commission is enforcing this new regulation why do they need to update it when we already had something in place what is it that they're they're trying to address more specifically this udr the EU deforestation fee products regulation fits into a framework the framework is called the eu green deal and within this framework, the European Commission is issuing new environmental legislation that are connected and they, are all, they all serve the same purpose. And the purpose is to make the European Union the first climate neutral continent. So in, an, in a nutshell, is about reducing greenhouse gases emissions. And deforestation is a major driver for climate change and biodiversity loss. So that's why tackling only the legality part, so the illegal logging component, was not enough. And that's why they use the UTR as a template in order to further enhance the scope and in order to better tackle the problem of deforestation and also degradation. Mm -hmm. Because this is a landmark regulation, because it's the first regulation in all the world. It's a law that tackles on top of deforestation degradation too is the first one. And of course, this has also uh, implication for companies and also for voluntary sustainability system alike, FSC. Mm -hmm. Can we then be specific here? Because is it all products that are made from timber and paper and natural rubber, which are covered by this legislation or just some of them? The commodities are soy, beef, palm oil, cocoa, coffee, rubber and wood. And wood, if you want, is a specific product within this regulation because wood is the only commodity that in order to be placed in the EU market or exported from the EU market, it has to be legal, it has to be deforestation-free according to the definition of deforestation-free within the regulation, and it has also needs to be degradation-free. In fact, wood is in, is in there because it's a driver of degradation. Those are the main commodities. Then if you look at the regulation, if you go into the so-called Annex 1, you also have the list of derived products. For instance, for wood, for timber, among the derived products, there is also pulp and paper. So pulp and paper is also covered by the regulation. For rubber, in terms of derived products, um, there are tires, but there are also products that don't fall within the scope of this regulation. For instance, bamboo, recycled fibers, and if essentially, if, you, if these products 
uh, are not part of the regulation, then companies don't need to carry out all the obligation of the UDR. They can simply place this product as they want. But for the other products, then they are they have several obligation in order in in case they want to place these products in the EU market. Mm-hmm. And what is it that they have to do, the companies, if they are subject to UDR? They have to do due diligence, but can you just put a few words to what does that mean? This is basically the essence of the regulation, the concept of due diligence. But before going into that, let me clarify something. I think this is an important point. Because what the European Union wants to do, they want to minimize the EU contribution to deforestation and degradation. They want to minimize the EU contribution because deforestation mainly happens outside of the EU. But there is something that we need to clarify. The European Union cannot impose obligation on other countries. What the European Union can do instead is to use its own market as a leverage in order to nudge other players to respect certain obligations. So they are incentivizing a deforestation-free market. What does it mean? That if you are dealing with these commodities, if you want to place those commodities in your market, you need to respect certain obligations. And in this obligation, that's where the due diligence comes from, meaning that you need to minimize as much as possible the risk that these commodities are illegal or they come from a land that was subject to deforestation or degradation. And due diligence is essentially three steps. So com- a company that wants to place these products in the EU market, they need to, first of all, gather information uh, about the products, where they source these products, whether there are indigenous people in this land. Then if they believe there are risk, they need to assess the risk. And then they need to mitigate the risk. And for example, FSC is a tool to further mitigate the risk. It's one of the tools in order to carry out this due diligence obligation. So this is how the the regulation works. And actually, it's the same structure of the timber regulation. The difference here is that this due diligence obligation goes in combination with what is called the benchmarking system, meaning that the European Union will also classify countries according to the level of risk. And there will be three levels of risk, a standard level of risk, high level of risk, and low level of risk. And depending on the level of risk, there will be different due diligence obligations. So just to give you a concrete example, imagine that the European Union will classify a given country as a low level of risk, then companies sourcing the commodities from these countries that then they want to place the product in the EU market, they will have less obligation compared to uh, companies that are sourcing commodities from a country classified as a high level of risk. So it's a bit more complex, but in a nutshell, the idea is to minimize, not to eliminate, do whatever you can in order to minimize the risk. Mm-hmm. I guess one of the big differences between the old legislation and the new legislation is also that that now is really tied to your process of placing products on the EU market because there's a centralized platform. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, indeed. Basically, in order to carry out the due diligence obligation, you need to gather this data, and we're talking about a lot of data. That's also where the the geolocation and the traceability aspect come from. Basically, you need to gather this data 
and you need to submit what is called the due diligence statement. And you need to submit this due, this, this due diligence statement by a new information system. So also the European Union is basically essentially investing in technology in order to ensure that companies can submit this data in a common format. And the thing is, the data is an essential part or if you want issue in order to implement well this regulation. Because we're talking about a lot of data depending on the commodities that you're sourcing. If you want to provide data concerning solid wood, it could be rather easy because we're talking essentially about a tree that you cut and essentially don't process it much. But if you're considering a paper, if you take one paper, a paper that you might have right now in front of you, then this comes from many different forests. So it might have many different inputs, and that means a lot of data. So this is a challenge. Okay, so now we have the scene all set. EUDR will impact almost all companies trading with products that contain forest-based materials if their products move into or out of the EU market. And it will set a much higher bar for the amount of information that companies must have about where their products come from. Information down to the individual plot of land and time of harvest. Now, let's pivot to talking about what FSC is doing about the legislation, how we're helping companies get to that kind of information. So, Joanna, thank you uh, for waiting so patiently. I, I don't know why you always seem to end up waiting patiently before I bring you in. But but you are here to help us get some of the nerdy details. Now, EUTR wasn't that difficult for FSC to adjust to. It was just adding one section to our standards that mandated to share information about species types and region of origin. What about EUDR? What are the gaps between our current system and what the legislation will be requiring? Indeed, it was much easier to adjust to the EUTR. With EUTR, however, we do need to not only add new requirements, but make sure that these additions are well aligned with remaining FST requirements, plus some fundamental principles that our organization has approved in the recent policies. So we just need to glue it all together. And additionally, while doing so, we have to obviously take into account the integrity of the system. And therefore, EUDR alignment uh, should be affecting those users that wants to use FST system to demonstrate compliance. But at the same time, we need to ensure that all the remaining users are still benefiting from our system and we don't create too much revolution in terms of traditional FST system. So we need to marry quite opposite expectations from our stakeholders, those that related to EU market and also those who wants to continue benefiting from FST as, it's, as it is today. But now, what are the differences exactly? Key area of differences are the same like for other organizations. So of course, the geolocation to the plot level, therefore traceability, as well as my favorite part of regulation in terms of challenges, so time of production, uh, needs emphasis. Those are the level of details that we currently do not possess, do not require in our system, and they are very challenging for many stakeholders. Considering the specificity of the timber products, uh, where we can do so many things from just one tree and spread these products out through time, through various supply chains, implementing just, just those two elements, so geolocation and time of production, is more than enough work. And, and um, not mainly from us, because we just adjust the standard, but, but effectively from our state stakeholders and certificate holders. And another one that I would like to stress here is the different approach to risk assessments for deforestation 
than the approach that we currently have in our risk, risk assessments. We have years of experience with due diligence system already. And we have made a very important organizational decisions uh, about uh, 10 years ago that we would like to switch from company risk assessments that EODR essentially is introducing to risk assessments that we deliver as a system to make them more consistent, more credible, uh, and more referable by stakeholders in terms of sustainability aspects. So today, our requirements for how we approach the risk for conversion, so in our language, deforestation and degradation are different to, to the elements of EUDR. And here, more, most importantly, if we change such requirements, they, we will have to make them effective for all our certificate holders, not only for those who want to go for EUDR, because it is such a fundamental tool that we have to make sure that we have the same common risk reference. We cannot afford that we will have two separate risk assessment systems because that would bring too much inconsistency and would create too high integrity risk. And then, of course, we have slight differences in terms of origin information, in terms of definitions, but we believe those three, the risk assessment framework, the geolocation and time of production, uh, meaning altogether, of course, traceability and more data are the key challenges, key differences that we currently have in our system. And they are no no small challenges. It sounds like you have more than enough on your plate Not to play to him. <laughs> so what are we doing right now to figure out how are we going to adjust to these gaps? Because each of them are a giant piece of work on their own. Well, first, we are talking to lots of stakeholders and to ourselves within the organization to first and foremost agree on what is the most pragmatic an implementable way of not only closing our differences to EUDR, but first and foremost to help making the EUDR Guang work on the ground. Ultimately, this is what we all want. So, so we treat our mission very seriously. We were always hoping for governments taking action so that then let's live up to our own promises, so to speak. So we are aware that, that EUDR leaves uh, practical aspects open. Um, many stakeholders are still hoping for clarifications to come, for FAQs to be updated and expanded, as well as that stakeholders and ourselves are not always really clear on how to interpret given requirements, what would really work. And, and this is where we want to provide support right away, to, to not wait for clarifications, but really build on our experience and provide such interpretations to our best understanding and knowledge with the possibility, of course, to adjust to any formal interpretations coming from the EU. So that's our first really key activity in closing gaps. Let's understand what does it mean on the ground before we touch our standards. So, so then we come, of course, to this natural step of changing our standards and adjusting them. And in this process, we are taking quite unusual approach because normally we would have a process, we would have a set of stakeholders working on it. It would take a lot of time. We don't have a time. So, so therefore, we are really mobilizing a large part of the organizations working across programs, cross units within FSC International Center, seeking support from our network in order to speed up. And we are dealing with many revisions of different standards at the same time. So we have to really put a lot of effort uh, in the coordination of all of this process. 
So what we do right now is literally we draft the amendments to our standard based on set of analysis, numbers of discussions, hours of workshops, uh, with the understanding about the requirement, the practicability as we have now. Um, we will then consult those draft requirements in February. So in February, we will have open window of 30 days of consultations where we will invite all the stakeholders to comment on what we've come up with. It will be technical consultation, but again, we want to make sure that we produce enough user-friendly materials so that our messages and our adjustments to all of these complex technical standards are really clear and, and understandable. Additionally, the standards needs to work with technology solutions that we want to offer. So, of course, that uh, adds additional engagement needs for, for checking with our TIU colleagues. TIU is our technology and information unit and making sure that whatever you write in the standard is actually reflecting uh, the tools that we are offering and, and we have uh, alignment between, uh, between our standards and rest of the solutions. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there's a lot of changes that needs to be happening and, and a lot of, I, I guess, interlinking with our tech tools. And we'll get to those in a second uh, because we will also be talking to Michael, our chief of technology. But before we get to that, what are the changes that we are expecting to make to our systems and standards? What, can we be more tangible at this point in time? I know we're not at a consultation stage, but can, can we just lift a little, little bit and see what's in there? Do we know? Of course, we do, actually. And uh, I am joining you today from the, from the board meeting uh, during which we are discussing those changes very comprehensively with our board members. And I cannot share official results, uh, but, uh, but we are optimistic and we hope that they will be accepted and the formal decision by the board confirms that this is the right direction that we can take, that stakeholders can later on see. So putting the lift, of course, I mentioned two key challenges. So obviously, we want to address those key challenges. We, we we need to mention here geolocation, traceability, and aligning the risk assessments. However, that's not basically what we will do for UDR purposes. We compare the gaps and we close those tiny 90 details, but also addressing those bigger issues. In terms of geolocation, in terms of traceability, we will simply add those requirements. In terms of differences in the definitions, we will amend or interpret our existing definitions to make sure that we are fully cover, covering EUDR. We will also implement some changes limiting our current rules for conversion so that we get stricter and we make sure that there is also thematic alignment with EUTR. So those changes are not that difficult technically to implement. Of course, they are much more challenging to implement on the ground, but not for us as such. However, there is very important element that makes it all slightly more challenging for us. Because I, as I stressed before, we need to make sure that whatever we add in one standard is aligned with whatever is, is there in other standards and that we are really very careful about our integrity, about our certifications body's role in all of these adjustments. And here we have to mention that UDR is very much aligned with an extremely important policy instrument that our General Assembly, so our membership, has approved last year uh, in uh, our General Assembly event. And this policy instrument is policy to address conversion. The policy to address conversion is a very high-level document that agree, is an agreement by, by our membership 
to really get much more stricter on conversion, on deforestation across our system. And this document has been developed in parallel to EUDR before EUDR really came to, mem to focus on the FST membership. So we were sort of doing our own EUDR lining up before the actual regulation has come up um, and, and the rest of the world also saw it. So for us, it is very important that we first and foremost are careful and align on how we want to now implement those high policy principles that we agreed our EUDR into our system as a foundation for anything else that would be coming additionally from EUDR. So this is our, our starting point, our primary alignment goal. First, we want to be true to what our membership developed for many years, which is extremely aligned with EUDR, I would say, even as a foundation so that we make sure that impact created by our certificate holders is, is equal in a way. So, so what we want to avoid that we will introduce the changes related only to EUDR without doing this first this policy alignment and that will later on create too much differences and we may realize uh, if we wait with this policy alignment and we first do EUDR we may discover later on that we have forgotten something that we actually created inconsistencies that our product uh, carrying the same uh, label or claim means different things and this is something that we have to avoid so we want to do it step by step and we needs to do it in the right sequence. So this policy alignment, the foundation, our internal EUDR must come first to our standards before we can top it up with additional and voluntarily requirements related to EUDR only. And this policy alignment is quite, is quite broad on its own. And this is, uh, this is something that we need to do first. And this is why our original idea of just creating extra requirements for EUDR will not work because this policy alignment must happen across the system. So we will be affecting the regular certificate holders as well by doing so. But at the same time, we hope to bring FSC system um, and position it really stronger as deforestation free because those policy provisions will allow us to do it. So in effect, we are touching a lot of standards. We are issuing interpretations to our key documents, such as international generic indicators, principles and criteria. We are touching key standards for China of custody, for controlled wood, to add those elements of due diligence system and uh, align them with these policy provisions. One fundamental alignment here that I have to mention is again risk assessments, because the risk assessments decide effectively about the risk for bringing uncertified material to FST system. So this is a key integrity issue for us. And therefore, the policy provisions that were approved plus EUDR at the top of that really makes little revolution in risk assessment requirements that we will be making. Positive one, I'm strongly convinced about that. But this will affect all certificate holders that are using those risk assessments and not only those that are related to EU market. No, yeah, well, it's really interesting. I, there's one thing I'd like to clarify because you said two things and I just need to make sure that, that I'm understanding you correctly. You said at one point that geolocation, time of harvest, that will impact all certificate holders. But then you also said this will be voluntary. So I guess my question is, these adjustments, will they be mandatory for all certificate holders? Because our biggest markets are in the EU, but we also have a lot of certificate holders whose, whose products never touch the EU. 
So is it mandatory or not? No, the geolocation and traceability will not be mandatory for all. This will only be applicable for those certificate holders who wish voluntarily to apply our module. But the foundation, so the risk categories, the definition of deforestation, degradation, the cut of dates, this all is a vehicle for geolocation and traceability that are, that are tools to prove those fundamentals that are in the UDR. And those fundamentals are first and foremost in our policy provisions that came before UDR came to our attention, so our internal UDR, and those will be mandatory for all. So we will have mandatory cut of date for all. We will have mandatory uh, definition alignment for, for all because this is, this is our integrity and those foundations, because they were already decided by our membership before UDR came to our attention as a system, those elements will be implemented and mandatory for all. And the relationship between them in UDR, apart from content similarities, is that we just need to do this faster. We cannot wait with them as we were planning to take more time to look carefully on our standards, to look how those fundamental policy alignments should look like. Now we don't have that time and we just need to accelerate it. So that's the challenge here, that normally we would be just waiting with that. And, and doing this in slower piece. But now we not only need to develop those add-ons for EUDR, but first and foremost, we have to first quickly introduce those very important uh, adjustments to our policy issues so that we have then the space and the clarity on how to effectively build add-ons at the top of that. Mm -hmm. And there you mentioned a, an interesting word for me, add-ons, because that's not a concept that we have in FSC at the moment. I mean, we don't have voluntary requirements inside our standards. Can you just speak two seconds about the concept there? So what we try to do uh, and what we mean by add-on is, let's imagine that you are a certificate holder and you are based in Europe and you are potentially interested in using FSC to demonstrate compliance with EUDR. We don't have green line. We have not been asking for it. And Matteo would, would immediately agree with me, I'm sure. Uh, and he would be happy that I'm raising that, by the way. Um, so, so if you are this regular certificate holder, then you want to use our module and we give you additional set of requirements that are coming at the top of regular FSC certification requirements for you to choose. Once you decide, yes, I want to use this module, I want to use FSC to demonstrate compliance or help me in this endeavor, once you commit to that, those requirements do become mandatory for you. But the entry point is voluntary. Once you decide, they, they must be mandatory for you because otherwise we cannot take responsibility for their credible implementations because we then put assurance requirements at the top of that. The certificate holder will be subject to non-conformities, will be subject to the additional demands and integrity system of the system requires that at this point of time, after you have chosen, you, you must comply with it. And it's not it's not cherry picking, right? It's, it's either or at the beginning. And if you if you go for yes, then it means that that uh, they become part of your system and become mandatory. Mm -hmm. And would you then need to have an audit before they're mandatory part of your chain of custody setup? So here we follow our regular accreditation rules. So in general. FST system implies that before you obtain a certificate, you must have undergone the audit and this audit must confirm that requirements are met. And the same concept will apply here. So let's imagine that you do already have a certificate and now you want to add this extra module. The certification mm -hmm. body 
should verify, you should evaluate you against those extra requirements and only afterwards they will be able to confirm through uh, that, that the evaluation was positive by extending the scope of your current certificate. So that's basically technical vehicle for us to, to allow this, this uh, addition. So it would not be completely new audit, completely extra audit, unless the certificate holder requests that from, from certification body. Uh, but the scope extension, as we technically refer to it, would have to be verified by certification body before it can be made. Mm -hmm. Here we are searching for some simplifications because because um, very interesting case study for us is our forest management certificates which goes far beyond EUTR requirements but yet legally forest management certificate holder in our case being an operator still needs to do risk assessment still needs to do due diligence so for those certificate holders though we hope that those scope extensions will be rather simple we will not expect certification bodies to do extra demanding evaluation because they already do it and they do much more as a part of evaluating our certificate holders. So there are different aspects and and simplifications mm -hmm. and uh, angles that we can look at that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you said that this would be out in February for consultation. When do we expect to have something ready for implementation that I as a certificate holder can say, I'm supplying into the EU, I'm placing something on the EU market, I want to adjust to this? First July. Okay. So that's that's very ambitious. That's also quite um, unusual in our process that that we have such a tight timeline, and this is not one of FSC timelines that we can easily move. So so this one must be complied with, and we are really putting a lot of resources to make sure this happens. Matteo, I can't help but be curious and, and bring you back in because uh, you were smiling quite a lot when Joanna said, we are not a green lane and we will not be applying to be a green lane. So I just wanted to give you a, a second to, to uh, touch base on this. Is there such a thing as a green lane? And if so, why isn't FSE? applying to beer. Yeah, first of all, let me say that I was indeed smiling and I was agreeing with, uh, with Joanna. But maybe first, best thing to do is to clarify what it is, a green lane. So this is a jargon in the EU sustainability world. And green lane means that if you're a company, if you're certified, in this case, FSC certified, you're automatically exempted to carry out the UDR due diligence obligation. And this is a great opportunity for me to clarify, first of all, that this option is excluded by the legislation, but also that FSC has never campaigned for such an option. We are a tool that can support the implementation, if you look at this, uh, this matter from the regulator side, and if you look at the matter from the company side, we are a, we are a tool that can easiest, that can facilitate their implementation, but we're not a silver bullet will never be. So especially in this context, each actor must play their own part in order to fight deforestation and degradation. And the clock is ticking. That's why we are addressing this. We're doing what Joanna said, this little revolution internally. The European Union has started the revolution with the EU Green Deal. We are also now playing our own role. We are acting for this internal little revolution. And we need to act not only because there is a legislation that will basically become applicable as of 1st of January 2025, but because we need to address these challenges. So this is the European Union that is taking responsibility and say we don't want to be associated anymore in driving deforestation and degradation. And everybody must play the, its own part. And we have to see that's what we're doing. We're playing 
our part in order to fight these challenges. Mm-hmm. And our part will then be being a tool not only for verification of the origin that it's deforestation and degradation free, but also being being the tool that actually helps get the data points that they need. Yeah, exactly. I mean, our, our part, I mean, here is first of all being serious about this issue and say, okay, we want to support the implementation not only of the UDR, but of many forestry sustainability legislation that are coming, changing our system, doing it fast implementing new requirements, in this specific case of the UDR, empowering smallholders, helping with partner countries, given our global reach, further enhancing the protection of indigenous people, and really fostering technology in order to make sure that it's possible to trace products up until what the European Commission says, plot of land, because otherwise it's not possible to claim that the product is deforestation free if you know where it comes from. So we are basically deploying our knowledge, our drive, our passion, our energy, our experience in order to make this a success, a reality on the ground. Okay, this is where I stop Joanna and Matteo for a second and jump to another interview because I need to bring Michael in here. Michael is traveling at the moment and couldn't join at the time of the interview, but since they both refer to tech, let's just bring him in and help get us caught up. Hi, Michael. Now, I know that you haven't heard the conversation that I had with Joanna and Matteo, but we talked about solutions to how FSC might support the EUDR compliance. And a lot of the solutions that Joanna has pointed to are based on tech, blockchain and GIS. Can you give us a glimpse into what our systems will look like from a tech perspective? Well, I mean, the UDR essentially requires traceability. And for companies in the supply chain that are trading and putting products in, in the EU market or exporting them from the EU market, that they have to know about their supply chains. And so traceability is fundamental to reaching compliance with the UDR. So therefore, blockchain is the underlying framework and technology that allows companies to connect with their entire supply chain in a secure and and, um, viable way. On top of blockchain, I think you mentioned geolocation. There are probably two important parts of supply chains that have to do quite a bit of data-intensive work, and one is at the source. So the EUDR requires geolocation and time of harvest for what it calls plots. And these plots our geographic uh, areas. So one thing that has to be captured at the source is the geolocation, and it needs to be linked to the time of harvest and the materials that are harvested and put into the supply chain. One other, I think, important aspect of the EUDR is risk assessment. So again, this definitely will have a geographic information system component because risk assessments can be made based on data sources, but especially data sources that are geographically relevant. For example, the EUDR essentially says prove that the materials that you're putting on the market or exporting have not contributed to deforestation. And so to do that, there are many geospatial statistical resources and and models that can help answer the question about deforestation and the area and time of harvest that materials have come from. So also risk assessments. And then the, the other really, I think, essential actor in the supply chain is the one that's actually doing the importing or exporting. The company that's performing importing or exporting 
in or out of the EU will have to aggregate all of the information about the product and make a due diligence statement, which includes all of the information required to, to understand uh, about the supply chain and about especially the source and the risk and the mitigation measures. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? Does that mean that we're tying together a blockchain and GIS? It does. Uh, the FSC blockchain provides a few, I think, important features. First of all, it allows companies that are FSC certified to connect more readily and easily with all of the companies in the supply chain, even if they don't know the entire supply chain. FSC can facilitate that process because we already have relationships with all of those companies. So facilitating that process, the blockchain can facilitate. But as far as the data goes, our base blockchain platform provides a base set of data that allows companies to share about their trading transactions. So that includes the date of the transaction, the volumes of the materials, the types of products, species data, and the direct trading partner. So on top of that, we've built our next generation blockchain so that it can be modular, so that companies will be able to add on other types of information, for example, geolocation or due diligence related information that would need to be aggregated to make those statements. So our blockchain is modular in that sense, but at the base, it is the fundamental point of trade data for the materials that are being handled across the supply chain. Mm-hmm. Well, and does that, it sounds like that all every single link of the chain would then have to input this information or is it input at the base at the first link in the blockchain? Well, each company in the supply chain will need to input what materials they are receiving and what materials they are outputting and selling down the supply chain. However, what is important to, to note here is all of those companies will benefit from the data that has already been input by their suppliers. So their direct suppliers will already provide them the volumes and the species and the product groups information and and so forth. So a lot of it will be just verifying that the transactions have taken place, agreement amongst trading partners, and then benefiting from the data that's already put in so that the company can use it to establish what are they outputting? Are they outputting a, a transformed set of materials or a final product? They will be able to link that uh, directly to the inputs that they received in the supply chain. Is this something that we're just getting started on, Michael? I know that we've had a couple of podcasts in the past about uh, blockchain, et cetera, but can you, can you just give us how long have we been working on this? We've been working on blockchain for two years. And in the last two years, we focused on testing the technology itself, using the cloud service versions of blockchain and formulating a platform that we could show companies could be trusted so that they basically see the same information that they see already today with their trading partners, but they had potential benefits of linking up in the supply chain. And our pilots in Ukraine and China were something that helped us understand what kind of barriers would companies need to overcome to be able to utilize a blockchain, but also what do they want out of such a platform if they're going to put their data in and see that their transactions are verified, they, they feel good about that thought, what more would they want? And so 
two years have been working on conducting those pilots, taking the learnings, establishing a way that we could build a, a more uh, extensible product based on the feedback and learnings from our pilots. And right now we're working on building these specific modular components to add on to help companies easily contribute to uh, compliance with EUDR. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically that means being able to share information securely, aggregate it, and cater for special kinds of, of data like geolocation and plots of land and time-bound geotemporal or geospatial time-bound data. Mm-hmm. So one thing you said before, which I can't help but, uh, but reflect upon, is that the blockchain would give a view into the entire supply chain, even though you don't know your entire supply chain. Did I understand that correctly? Will you automatically be giving the information back and forth in the supply chain? So you automatically get a lot of things. Once a company comes onto our blockchain, first of all, they can identify their direct trading partners. Once they identify their direct trading partners, there's a set of pretty rich information that a company can can get just from putting that in. First of all, the companies can see, have my trading partners also joined the blockchain? If not, how can I let them know that I'm participating and they, that you would like them to participate too? Then it allows companies to, to understand, are there trading partners and therefore their links to the entire supply chain? Are they already onboarded? But they also get another set of information. What products, species, et cetera, can a company provide to me? So... Mm-hmm. Already, the, the kind of information without putting in one transaction is quite beneficial to companies. It, it means that they have more readily available knowledge of their direct trading partners and the supply chains their direct play, trading partners are linked to. Regarding other types of, of information that would be readily available to a company, the FSC blockchain is not built to have complete view over a supply chain, not even for FSC. FSC would have a bird's eye view, but for the specific company, first of all, companies in a supply chain decide what information they want to share with their direct trading partners and along the supply chain. Some of that, especially with EUDR, companies will, in order to participate and make it valuable and make it their contribution capable of helping demonstrate compliance, they will need to share certain information from the source, for example. So that, that information can travel along the supply chain to demonstrate compliance or to output those due diligence statements. Overall, there is this bird's eye view is something that I think that for FSC is important just to understand what are the flows and mismatch transactions happening and, and that kind of thing. Um, FSC would be able to also ask companies to to answer any questions on any any uh, data that tells us we need to to look more closely at a supply chain. Mm-hmm. So, are you saying that view location and time of harvest is automatically shared along the supply chain, or are you saying that's actually up to the company? Companies will have the ability to either share on a case by case basis or automatically because they want to ensure that that data is always readily available. If they do it on a case-by-case basis, it could be the same outcome. They would just have to do it for every uh, trade that needs to demonstrate EUDR compliance. 
but companies will also have the ability to say, I am perfectly fine with, with sharing this information because I know that it, it uh, supports compliance with the UDR. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, I can't help but think, Michael, it sounds like we're really specific in terms of, of what it is that we are developing. We have done a couple of pilots, but none of these solutions are rolled out really widely just yet. I mean, we have the GIS portal, but it's only available for auditors for certified forest areas. We have the blockchain in the pilot mode, but it's not rolled out for everyone to use. How do we know that we will be done in time? I mean, it's only a little over a year until the until the legislation really enters into force and everyone has to be ready. What is our time schedule for all of this? Well, Loa, our next generation blockchain is essentially ready right now. To, to get to supporting EUDR and supporting companies and showing compliance, what our plan is, is to start rolling out in Q1 onboarding companies, but to have all of the functionalities that would be essentially the components on our blockchain that support companies in showing compliance, for example, gathering uh, geospatial and time-bound data, as well as the ability to start outputting uh, due diligence statements, that would happen towards Q2 and the second half of the year so that the onboarding can already start. Companies can also see the, the new features coming out. And so by middle of next year is when we hope to be able to onboard even a broader set of companies and supply chain. Mm-hmm. Okay. So by mid next year, we're really expecting that massive rollout. What happens if companies want to take part of pilots or test attacks between now and then? Is that possible? Well, the companies that have contacted us, we already started bringing them on board in the sense of understanding the data requirements, the data uh, standardization that they will need to implement and be ready for to be able to participate in the blockchain. So that will already start. But because we have designed the next generation blockchain so that companies can easily have their trading partners come on board, should they invite them or inform them that they're part of this and they are looking to support EUDR compliance, they're able to naturally onboard supply chains and that is the natural onboarding and expansion of companies coming on board would naturally happen. So what I'm hearing you say is that we are right now not looking for more pilot partners, but that companies who are happy, lucky enough to be part of one of the supply chains of some of the pilot partners that we do have because they can auto onboard, they'll be brought on board, but the others will have to, to patiently wait until Q2 next year. That's one scenario is that the companies who have contacted us and and expressed great interest in joining and want to be a part of it, we're trying to make the absolute capability so that they can come on board in the beginning. It it won't be, however, just naturally only onboarding via those who have come on board. I mean, we'll need to open up and establish ways for companies to also not just express that they want to come on board, but they can actually do it themselves. So we're preparing our systems and have already prepared our systems so that those companies who come into some of our other portals are able to establish the right kind of access for their company to our blockchain. I can't help but think, Michael, are we ahead of our community here? Is it the norm for certification schemes to have these kind of digital setups that they can pivot? Well, we watch the community in detail. And I mean... For example, in the ICL Alliance, I guess um, RSPO for 
uh, palm oil, they had traceability types of systems. And I think that also fair trade has some types of traceability already as a part of their certification. However, this type of supporting companies with compliance, with legality, um, I haven't really seen in, in the certification realm, a lot of companies actually putting a lot into this. Now I've seen outside of the certification realm, there are plenty of companies popping up with blockchain services and products that claim that they will help companies with compliance with EUDR. And this is, I think, natural and, and something we've seen. I think how to differentiate what FSC is doing and why it would be something that would be valuable for FSC certified companies is that we can support those companies with one of the most important parts of showing compliance. You have to know your supply chain. FSC can connect all of the companies in an FSC certified supply chain. So I haven't seen any important uh, kinds of digital products. I, I know that there's a lot of work being done in that certification communities, but nothing of, of this sort. I think that we've already done a lot with blockchain and done a lot with traceability and, and integrity and compliance. So we're just benefiting from work that's really been done in the past. Mm-hmm. I can't help but think that one of the other differentiators between us and non-certification-specific products would probably also be the fact that you know, we actually have auditors on the ground who help verify that, yes, what goes into this system is actually correct. Well, it's true. And in fact, I mean, one, one data point that I didn't mention before is, you know, the UDR has several facets. One is traceability, but there are also aspects of this regulation that go towards, you know, are there indigenous peoples in mm-hmm. those geolocations where the materials were sourced? And if there are, have the rights of indigenous peoples been respected, et cetera. So one important data source for us will be our digital order reports, gathering information about the rights of indigenous peoples and how they were consulted and, and uh, pre, <laughs> free prior and informed consent, FPIC, was uh, respected. So, I mean, there, there's a lot to gain from the certification process and the fact that these companies were audited. Let's pause here and wrap this episode up. We've learned what the new things are in the legislation compared to the old EUTR regulation, and we've learned why it requires much more from FSC. In the next episode, we will dive even deeper into the what is, when we go deep into what certificate holders can expect from FSC in terms of support. And if you're curious to move on to that episode straight away, don't worry, they're launched in one go, so hopefully it will start automatically in your player. Remember to subscribe to Forest of the Future if you want to get notified of new episodes where we dive into other innovations within FSC and the world of certification and sustainable forest management. You can also always get in touch with me on podcast at fsc.org. I am Laura Worm, and this was Forest for the Future. <laughs>